Well, Grace thinks you look like a character from Riverdale. I want to hear more about that. Should we talk about that? Let's just start start rolling, Tony. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. If you were a listener of the previous iteration of Hot Takedown, welcome back. And if you're new, we hope you like what you hear. Today is April 30th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. How's Hi, it going? Hi, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm well. Good to be back in the studio after a week away. Yes. Uh, and I missed a get off my field. Very, very disappointed. You but... did. Yeah, but that's okay. There'll be, there'll be plenty more. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 Sports Editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? How you doing, Sarah? I'm well. Did you um, enjoy all seven rounds of the NFL draft? I assume you watched every, every round and took copious notes. You know what? I'm going to be honest. I liked it better when it was all over on the weekend during the day. I, I'm not into this primetime thing. Go back to the old way. Really? Yeah. Interesting. They did make – it was a, a kind of a spectacle. It was a – you know, they had Taylor Swift, so... And let's be honest, the draft is nothing but people reading off names on a list. It mm-hmm. is literally just the, the revealing of a list. That is not spectacle. Riveting. I'm sorry. Stop trying to make it a spectacle. It's a, it's a freaking list. <laughs> I do appreciate the effort that they've put into it to make it more interesting than just reading names off a list. Which is basically what the MLB draft is. Yeah, they don't even try. They're just like, whatever, guys, let's move on. <laughs> do you, are there any other drafts you watch besides NBA and NFL? Do you, like, do you actually watch the MLB draft? No. But I have watched no. the NHL draft before, what? Uh, which is really weird. Uh, well, when I was a kid, I loved hockey so much that after the end of the Stanley Cup Finals, I just didn't have enough hockey, and I really wanted to watch um, the uh, the the next hockey-related activity. I would watch the NHL awards ceremony, and then mm. I would watch the NHL draft, and then I'd feel really sad about myself. Was this was this because the Thrashers were so bad, Neil? Well, the Thrashers did have the first pick in um, the 1999 draft. They took Patrick Stefan, and he was a colossal bust, one of the worst ever. Uh, and my favorite Patrick Stefan play was where he skated in on a completely empty net, slipped, lost the puck, somehow it went back in the opposite direction, and the opposing team scored the game-tying goal, and this all happened in the last like 10 seconds of a game. Wow. So that was the first pick ever made by the Atlanta Thrashers in their history, was <laughs> a guy most known for the most epic fail in hockey history. I'm not going to lie. This is not how I expected this show to start. Well, you know, we're always full of surprises. <laughs> okay. So on today's show, we'll recap the NFL draft to see which teams set themselves up for success and which teams did not. We'll talk to ESPN analyst Kurt Goldsberry, whose new book, Sprawl Ball, takes on the changing NBA. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The draft wrapped up Saturday after seven rounds of picks in three days. Defense ruled the first round. Defensive front seven players were taken with 12 of the first 19 picks. But, of course, we're still always talking about quarterbacks. Oklahoma's Kyler Murray went to the Arizona Cardinals with the first pick, as expected. The second quarterback taken had some analysts scratching their heads. With the number six pick in the draft, the New York Giants selected Duke quarterback Daniel Jones, who was projected as a first rounder, but much later in the first round. 
Here's NFL analyst Todd McShay during ESPN's first take on Jones' career prospects. I see a backup quarterback in the NFL. We did all statistics on all these quarterbacks. Second to last of all the quarterbacks, talking about 15 draftable quarterbacks this year, second to last in terms of under pressure, which is the most important thing to evaluate with quarterbacks from college to the NFL. Well, so Todd McShay said that uh, performance under pressure is the best marker of success translating between college and the NFL, and Jones rated very poorly in that stat. Neil, is that a good metric by which to measure quarterbacks? Well, that part is kind of funny because um, it's not a very good metric. So I mentioned Pro Football Focus. They have a great data science team that is constantly kind of digging into what is predictive and is not predictive of success. Using They have a grading system where they grade every throw, and they also have done some machine learning things around like route types and throw types and things like that. And so when they found – they were looking at what translates to – actual NFL success at quarterback and they found that stats under pressure are like far less predictive of future performance than stats from what they call a clean pocket so you know you're standing there and you can actually kind of survey the field and make throws and that sounds a little counterintuitive because I think most of us think that you know performance under pressure says something about a quarterback's ability to process things quickly make the right decision and sort of courage standing there But those are also plays where there's a lot of external factors affecting what happens. It's not just the quarterback and football famously being the sport where we can't disentangle uh, the effect of teammates, the effect of opponents, the effect of just all of these moving parts on a quarterback. That is what drives the the performance in a clean pocket being more predictive because it's just like it's the quarter. It's so much more about the quarterback's own skills than other things. And so they like to look at uh, the ability of a prospect um, when he's not under pressure and also to make these very specific NFL type throws. These they, they did some research looking at you know, which throws are going to come up often in the NFL that you can see hints of in college and which throws is a guy making in college that he's really not going to be able to throw in the pros or they don't add that much value in the throws. And so this is what separates, and it's still early in the research process, but this separates the like air raid, you know, Graham Harrell types throwing passes, you know, three yards downfield on a slant and then uh, Michael Crabtree takes it 80 yards down the field. (laughs) Those so perhaps not surprisingly are not all that predictive of future NFL success. But if you can stand there and throw, you know, 12 yard out to the sideline on a rope, it doesn't matter what offense you're in. It says something about how you can play in the NFL. And that's where Jones starts to sort of fall short uh, by the standard of these NFL type big time throws. Uh, he was nothing special in college. And also, if you look at some of the stuff that our colleague Josh Hermsmeyer has done, where he looked at, you know, completion percentage, but adjusted for the depth that mm-hmm. a the quarterback was throwing and the strength of competition, they found that Daniel Jones's completion percentage was really Really low. It was two percentage points below what we would expect from sort of an average quarterback based on the depth of throws and the strength of competition. On the other hand, Kyler Murray and even Dwayne Haskins were nine points higher in terms of their completion percentage relative to expectation. And so that's another kind of red flag about Daniel Jones is, yeah, there's some things on the tape that show, you know, he does hang in there against the rush. And it does almost seem sort of reminiscent of Eli Manning because a lot of Manning's most signature plays as a pro have been about him sort of standing in there and making these throws and 
delivering in these pressure situations. But if you look at the whole track record, there's a lot more negative than there is positive. And I think that's why a lot of the draft nicks were so low on Daniel Jones's potential, um, whether it's by the eye test or by the advanced stats. Yeah, in in the 538 model, Jones had a 17% probability of NFL success, which we were defining as um, meeting or exceeding a career average of 7.1 yards per passing attempt, which is, you know, a sort of arbitrary thing, but that Josh worked out as a as a measure of success. And I'm guessing some of the, uh, you know, we don't have a model for pass rushers or, you know, defensive players. Um, but according to some of the stuff that uh, ESPN Stats and Info has done, where they looked at combine numbers and the evaluations of people like Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay, they found that some of these pass rushers that the Giants passed up to be able to take Daniel Jones, like your Josh Allens and your, you know, even Ed Oliver uh, and some of these guys had a much higher chance of being a pro bowler or even just a long-term starter than Daniel Jones did. If you look at the breakdown uh, for Daniel Jones, he's much more likely to be a replacement level or backup level quarterback (laughs) uh, in his career than... um, you know, somebody like Josh Allen is much more likely to be a pro bowler or a starter. Jeff, what were the Giants doing with that pick? That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer. And you know what? I I, I hate to pile on the Giants. Really? Yeah, do you, though? Um, <laughs> well, that's not necessarily true. I kind of love to pile on the Giants, but, I, you know, I'm not trying to get my, you know— b- Jet fan bias, you know, in the way here. I, you know, objectively, I don't think it made much sense. I'm not necessarily— convinced that I think people on the other side of the spectrum are a little quick to just assume this guy is going to be a bust. I mean, there's a a fairly low to decent chance he's a serviceable NFL quarterback. High praise. No, this this is not what you want to hear for a pick (laughs) that high. I think the problem more is just the lack of value. It's one thing if this was a draft year, like like I think back, and I, I think some other people might have compared it to 2011, where there was this run on quarterbacks in the front half of the the first round, and people were taking guys like way earlier than they were being projected. It was uh, Jackson. I mean, after Newton went, Jacksonville, uh, Tennessee took Jake Locker at eight. Jacksonville took Blaine Gabbert at ten. And then Minnesota took Christian Ponder at 12. And, and all these guys were like, Christian Ponder at 12? Like, what? We didn't even have him in the first round. But this wasn't even the case. There was no one taking quarterbacks. Like, what? There was no, they could have got, they had a later pick in that round where he surely would have been there. He probably would have been there for their third pick. Um, so there was no pressure unless they have, you know, intel that another team was rushing to trade up to take Daniel Jones ahead of them. I, I don't think that's true. That's what Giants GM Dave Gettleman said. He insisted that Jones wouldn't have been available by their next pick, which was number 17. They were hearing that Washington um, and Denver might have taken might have taken Jones earlier. So that was that was Gettleman's reasoning anyway. Washington may have taken Daniel Jones if the Giants had taken Dwayne Haskins. Right. <laughs> You can't really say that, you know, because they're playing a role in that scenario. Yeah, and it does seem like they sort of anticipated, like you mentioned, runs on certain positions. Like they anticipated a quarterback run, and then it like didn't happen. The only worse feeling than, uh, you know, 
feeling forced to pick a quarterback and reach for one uh, in the midst of one of those runs is like sort of preemptively thinking there's going to be one. And then it's like, oh, wait, we're, we're not all taking quarterbacks right now. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, Haskins uh, went 15th. And then um, Denver ended up actually trading to take Drew Locke in the second round. Drew Locke, by the way, much better projections uh, of, of future career success than Daniel Jones. Uh, and so, you know, in all the mock drafts had uh, Jones falling to the Giants at 17 or, you know, Todd McShay at ESPN had him going 28th. So I don't, I don't know what they were um, necessarily reading in the room. But also, if somebody is going to trade up to take Daniel Jones somewhere between the 6th and 17th pick, you let them do that. <laughs> you know, when someone else is, is doing something like that, don't don't get in their way. Right. Get out of their way. Um, it, it might be uh, a rival doing something like that. Well, it seems to speak to how much Gettleman loved Jones more than any other team seemed to love Jones. And Jones' coach at Duke, David Cutcliffe, also coached current Giants quarterback Eli Manning at Ole Miss, also coached Peyton Manning at Tennessee. So uh, is there some sort of familiarity here that they think he's going to be the next Eli? Is the next Eli a good thing for the Giants? Right. Should you even want... I mean, uh, you know, Eli, when his career is said and done, we can, you know, spend a whole podcast unpacking, like, what that was. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, Cutcliffe has this pedigree of being this quarterback whisperer. You know, uh, he, he... Definitely has had success in the passing game at Duke, which only Steve Spurrier in history has also been able to say. Uh, <laughs> and so you have something there. But I think it's telling that if you look at Jones's college numbers, his grades at somewhere like Pro Football Focus, they were not all that great. They were pretty, you know, average uh, and middling. And so if you did that with a great quarterback whisperer coach who you won't be able to take with you to the pros, what does that say about you? And I know he had bad offensive line and wasn't surrounded by a whole lot of talent, but it just seems like the Cutcliffe thing, the uh, the Giants are trying to spin it like it's a positive factor, Mm -hmm. but it actually shouldn't be a negative factor that you were not able to do more with this great quarterback coach. uh, And and now you're going to try to make your way in the NFL presumably without, you know, being able to talk to him after every practice, after every game, etc. So no matter how you look at it, it really seems like kind of an epic reach. Yeah. Well, the Giants weren't the only team to reach that early. In fact, the reason that Josh Allen was still available at number six was because he was not taken by Oakland, which took defensive end Cleland Farrell, who was projected in mock drafts to go around number 19. Jeff, are are these teams getting good value even with these picks that aren't supposed to go so early? Yeah, Farrell pick definitely surprised me, mainly because I probably had read too many mock drafts at that point, and I didn't really see that from anyone. I mean, that being said, I I don't think it's really fair to lump it in the same category as the Jones pick because he was more or less predicted to – Farrell was more or less predicted to be a sort of top 10 guy. Um if you look at what the Raiders did overall, and I was not that impressed. I mean, they had a great opportunity to really reshape this team, reshape this team before it goes to Las Vegas. I don't think I walked away very impressed with how they were supposed to rebuild their team with all these picks. Well, the draft, uh, given that it's just a uh, reading names off of a list, was still pretty entertaining, though maybe not for fans of every team. Now all we have to do is wait to see how those picks will actually turn out. 
Before we move on, let's get a word from this week's sponsor, 1-800-Flowers. This Mother's Day, don't settle for anything less than the biggest and brightest bouquets from 1-800-Flowers.com. 1-800-Flowers has amazing offers on beautiful Mother's Day bouquets and arrangements starting at $29.99, but you have to order today. With an amazing selection of sweets, treats, and bouquets, 1-800-Flowers has everything you need for Mother's Day. Make sure you lock in this offer. It's only good while supplies last. After you've you've chosen your gorgeous bouquet or arrangement, simply pick your delivery date and let 1-800-Flowers handle the rest. To order beautiful and vibrant Mother's Day bouquets starting at $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code TAKEDOWN. Order today and save at 1-800-Flowers.com, code TAKEDOWN. Our guest today on Hot Takedown is no stranger to 538. Kurt Goldsberry is an MBA analyst at ESPN and a contributor to our site, as well as a professor at the University of Texas. He has a new book out today, Sprawl Ball, a visual tour of the new era of the NBA. Hi, Kirk. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here in New York City with y'all. So let's dive right in and talk about the book. What does the title refer to? Well, as a geographer, Sprawl uh, is a term sort of that expresses how a city often grows outward and sometimes distastefully so towards the perimeter uh, of the urban growth, suburban growth. Um, and so I think that metaphor applies to the game of basketball. Sprawl in the title refers to how the NBA's scoring economy is sprawling out towards the edges of town. Uh, in our case, it's the three-point line that's changed. It. So I didn't know um, anything about the book before they sent me a copy. I know you, obviously, um, and I knew it was going to have a lot of a lot of charts in it uh, and, and kind of bring that map mentality to um, the book. But I thought, oh, you know, maybe it'll be like a love letter to the current era of basketball. And I was kind of wrong about that. You know, we, <laughs> we had a segment on our show last week called Get Off My Field where uh, Nate – Silver railed against the adverse effects of analytics on baseball. It seems like your book, uh, an alternate title, could be Get Off My Court uh, yeah. in some ways, specifically about the three-point line. Could you talk a little about, like, it, it's sort of like a criticism of the way the game is played today as much as anything, right? Yeah, if I could. Yeah, I I, I love basketball right now, Neil. Um, <laughs> it, and that needs to be said. I love the NBA. I think it's a better game now than it was 20 years ago. However, uh, there's some alarming trends, and I don't like where things are going. Um, so my get off my court is mostly for 2024, 2029. If less, if, if this is less, uh, left sort of, um, if nobody, if there are no changes made, the, the cartoonish shot selection trends of the last 10 years are going to get more and more extreme. In fact, the, the biggest changes year over year in three point rate, uh, since they added the three point line have been in the last three years. Um, and the Rockets, as we know, are shooting over half of their shots from three. Uh, this is crazy. Um, where is this going, I think, is the better question. Um, if you love the way the game looks right now, the trends are so alarming and so drastic uh, that I do think uh, it's time to consider some pretty important uh, changes. Why do you think it took so long? You know, you talk about the three-point line being the biggest change of your lifetime, but it was a pretty long time ago still. Right. And it's just now really within the last decade, five years, maybe that three point shooting has really taken off. Why do you think it took the NBA so long to adapt to it? Great question. But are you calling me old? Because I said it was the biggest of my lifetime. And I meant that. But then you said, but it was a long so time ago. If so Wikipedia I'm slightly can, offended. If Wikipedia can be believed, we were born in the same year. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wikipedia may not be believed. Okay. Uh, so regardless, it's a fascinating question. I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's the confluence of two or three things. Number one, the analytics era unquestionably sort of revealed the margins, just like it did in baseball and made Nate mad. It accelerated <laughs> the awareness of certain margins uh, in, 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 in the tactical sort of behaviors of teams. Um, and shot selection is the number one sort of manifestation in that. And the second part of this decade has been the analytics era of the NBA. That's number one. Number two, we now have a fleet full of shooters that grew up with this shot, grew up with this shot being an acceptable shot. We weren't saying that 30 years ago, and this thing was a gimmick. So you have players that have had the line on the court since they were kids. Uh, even when I was a kid, uh, there wasn't the three-point line on every court that I would play a game on. Um, so, And now we have coaches that have grown up around the line too. So I think it's the confluence of, of all of those things happening um, and, and sort of changed how fast we're falling in love with the three. Do you think the solution is to move the line back? I mean, also, I sort of wonder, you know, you look at like Dame Lillard's shot the other night and you look at, you know, obviously what Curry does. Like, won't the natural evolution of the shooter just be able to hit through? I mean, these guys are basically hitting from inside half court now. So I'm wondering, do you think that will change it? And also, like, what are the ramifications of moving the line in terms of like history and, you know, statistics or do we not care? And it's only baseball that really cares about those things. Well, <laughs> these are great questions. Let me start with the, the, the moving the line. I think if you love the NBA in 2019, you're in love with a, a league that has been very aggressive with rule changes during its history um, and has suddenly been sort of sitting on its hands for the last 10 or 15 years, um, in part because the league is awesome right now and business is so good. Um, but remember, we didn't have a three-point shot. We didn't have illegal defense. We didn't even have goaltending when this thing started. Um, so if you love the way the NBA is, you are sort of thankful for rule changes to getting us to this point. So I think we have to be open to it. The other thing about your shot distance question is a great one. Dame Lillard, Steph Curry, James Harden, that's not who would be affected if we moved the line back two or three feet. Those guys are actually going to have a, a, a more – um, heightened relative value to other guys. It's the toe on the line guys, the specialists that can barely get to 36% from 23.75 feet. They're going to have hard time sort of justifying shooting uh, at the levels they're shooting if we move the line back. So I think the most obvious solution here is to experiment with moving the line, um, probably back a foot or two. Um, but you're right. I mean, Dame Lillard is not going to be affected. In fact, he's still going to hit 36, 37, 38% of his threes. Steph, the same way. But some guys like, uh, you know, Kevin Love, for instance, who shoots a lot of threes, he doesn't have that kind of deep range yet. Uh, and here's another sort of provocative idea I, I propose in the book. I think we look at like four to five different scenarios, Jeff, that we could uh, evaluate um, for what would happen. Um, but what if we moved the line every year in relation to the shooting data? What if we made the, the shot worth on average one point? For the population of shooters and redelineated every year with a fresh batch of data. Um, that's a dynamic data-driven solution that could help us sort of standardize the margins and shot selection that are driving these trends. Um, but there's a lot of things we can look at. And the last point I'll make is it's not up to me as an analyst to decide what's good for the game. Um, I think it would the NBA needs to approach rule changes with a committee of players, coaches, and executives that all have the best interest of the sport uh, in mind. So I, I, I want to be careful. It's not up to me to say what's right or wrong for the sport. 
I was really interested in that idea about moving the line, you know, in, dynamically to make sure that always it matched up with sort of the calculus of the two-point shot. And it seems like um, one of the things you hammer in the book is that when they put in the three-point line originally, it was, like you said, a gimmick. It, it was something that it seems like they put very little thought into and they wanted to do it. It came from the ABA just designed to kind of make people excited and differentiate that rival league from the NBA. But it has had like this incredible string of <laughs> unintended consequences that George Mikan and all of these other people really never saw coming, right? Right. So, yeah, a lot of people, Neil, don't realize the three-point line, as it's currently drawn on an NBA court, was actually first drawn in 1961 in the American Basketball League by a guy named Abe Saperstein, who founded the Globetrotters, who was like the Vince McMahon or P.T. Martinum of basketball, um, and deserves a lot of credit. And he did go to coaches and be like, where should this gimmicky shot go? But what are the chances, Neil, that the three-point line that existed in 1961 for that failed basketball league for, that existed for two years, like the AAF uh, or the XFL, is the right place for uh, shooters in 2019? I don't think the chances are very high. And what you all – the other part of your question I think is really important. We have an opportunity with these data sets, with these very precise shooting data sets to inform where that thing should go and balance the shots that we're seeing in the league. Um, one of the things that kills me, and it is sort of get off my lawn-ish, but Dirk and Dwayne just retired, right? Two of my favorite players from the last 15 years. Dirk shoots fadeaways. That shot's dying off. Dwayne's entire mid-range game is, is sort of labeled foolish now or inefficient. If that line goes to a place where people like Dirk and Dwayne can still shoot those beautiful shots without being ridiculed as inefficient, my opinion is the league's in a better place if we're doing that. Um, I'd rather Dwayne Wade shooting a fadeaway off the right block than another Channing Fry catch-and-shoot three. Like I, I don't want to live in a world where that's a better shot than a Dwayne or a Dirk mid-ranger. And a lot of that is informed by some of the beautiful charts in the book where you show just what calculus the players and teams are looking at now and the the gulf in value between basically there's a zone under the basket where shots are really valuable and there's the three-point line and there's just the sea of negative value shots in between uh, and players are only responding to the incentives that are put in front of them and the incentives say those shots in between those you know fadeaways that Dirk I guess makes efficient because he's so good at it but few players can do that it just doesn't make sense to almost ever take those shots and teams like the Rockets were ahead of the curve on figuring that out but now uh it's every team is going to start you know moving away from them they already have is there something to adding more lines or is that a terrible idea I don't know if it's terrible to again it's not up for me to say in general no I think we have the right number of lines I think the three-point line accomplished its main objective which as Mike stated back when he did it for the ABA was to open up the game and to give smaller players a chance um but I think in 2019, we're looking at a version of the sport where it's the bigger players that need a chance. It's the mid-range shooters that need a chance. And so I think, yeah, making that shot a little less potent, the three-point shot, um, will naturally sort of breathe some life back into these other areas that are sort of being left 
ignored in these shot types that I, I associate with Jordan and Dirk, as I said, and Dwayne and Chris Bosh and all these guys who used to shoot in this zone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to breathe some life back into that zone. I think the easiest, to Jeff's point, the easiest thing to do is to move the line, but that's certainly not the only thing. Kirk, you talk in the book about the new breed of MVP candidates, um, Steph Curry and James Harden, and the idea that MVP candidates might always need to be three-point shooters going forward. This was obviously written before this season and this MVP race, which, um, which features Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is more of a throwback kind of right. player a little bit. How does he fit into kind of your overall view of the NBA? Yeah, well, it's it's true. I think, you know, Steph and Harden have really deformed what we think of an MVP because they've used perimeter scoring more than any other MVPs in league history and broken these records. Um, and I do think that's a new path forward for our best superstars and our best scorers. Uh, but the tried and true way to dominate the sport is in the paint. And the book points out that the best shots in the league are still at the rim. Right. Um, and Giannis has come along and done more paint damage than anybody since Shaq in his absolute prime. And, and I always point out with the LeBron chapter in there, anybody who, who leads the league in scoring and efficiency in the paint is automatically the best player in the, in the league. And LeBron did that for a number of years, and, and Shaq had done that, and now Giannis is doing that. And to an extent, you're tempted to say he's not part of the sprawl ball era, but like LeBron, he's really good at creating three-point shots for his teammates. Mm-hmm. And Milwaukee has built this three-point um, revolution in their own offense around his ability to attack uh, the center of the court, and they've spaced around him. Uh, and he's the, he's he's one of the leaders in three point assists this year. So he's creating uh, more of these threes than any other guys, which is intrinsic to being a great uh, shot creator uh, right now too. Is how can you create those threes? Would you take him for the MVP over Harden? Yes, I always say if we had any defensive metrics worth anything. It would be very obvious that he's the most valuable player in the league. I think it says it more about the state of our offensive bias um, and our crappy metrics that, <laughs> that Harden is, is, is there. Now, Harden is an incredible player, and I'm not mad at anybody who votes for Harden. Don't get me wrong. But right. I'm taking Giannis. Yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of interesting because I, I think I made a version of this comment to Nate last week when he was deriding the home run strikeout trends in baseball. Is that for a while, you know, home runs were the most exciting playing baseball and they're still exciting. Whereas, you know, the three pointer is still exciting, even though they hit them routinely. And you look at the popularity of the league and it really has sort of correlated with the rise of the Warriors and this style of play. So I'm sort of wondering if this is a, if the league is surging in popularity and narrowing the gap with the NFL, which it, completely is i think especially among you know the millennial generation are we trying to fix something that's maybe not broken here no that's a fantastic question as well and i would i would go back to the idea that if you like the way the game looks right now then you're not necessarily going to like where it is in five years because the 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 shifts are so drastic right now jeff the year-over-year trends um, are cartoonish in nature. If we, and left unchecked in 10 years, this is not what you're going to be watching anymore. Regardless, you're exactly right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, it's not up to me to say it's broke. And the book is mostly about sort of saying, man, look at how fast this is changing. Here's a portrait of where we are in 2019. But if this is unchecked, are we really going to like teams shooting 60% of their shots from three-point range? Are threes still going to be exciting if, if there's 47 of them a game against like 35 twos or whatever. Uh, I don't think it will be. I think by the nature, it was exciting because it was rare. 
um, and it was it was unique. Um, but when it's as commonplace as a four seam fastball, I don't think it's as exciting. So let's talk about the playoffs uh, that are going on right now. Uh, Kirk, you devoted a whole chapter to James Harden as sort of this avatar of sprawl ball in like human form. Uh, what do you think about this report that came out with the Rockets uh, detailing this itemized list of all the calls that they could have gotten in Game <laughs> Seven against the Warriors last year, and then also the complaints about um, the the calls that may or may not have been missed on on Sunday uh, in Game One of this year's series? Is this sort of like you know the, the Rockets' style is so analytically tuned toward drawing fouls? Because you pointed out that. As great of a uh, shot as a Steph Curry wide open three is, sending James Harden to the uh, free throw line is even more efficient than that. Yeah. And the the way in which James Harden actually draws uh, free throws so, uh, often three at a time even compounds that. That sort of calculated ref gaming, if you want to call it, style of basketball, is that the natural outgrowth of the sport in another way of like, are we going to see teams sort of trying to game not just threes and locations on the court, but this idea of flopping and trying to sort of get everything that you can out of the refs. And if it means sending a manifesto to the league a year later about all the calls that they missed, you know, so be it. Uh, is that also part of it? And Harden sort of dri- driving that trend also? If we're chasing the efficiency dragon all the way down the trail, we'll end up chasing fouls because, as you point out, these are the better than threes um, and the best, the holy grail from a purely analytical version of the sport is to get a three-point shooting foul. And that's what we've seen in this first game. Oh, you're not calling those for us? Well, blah, 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 blah. And those things are incredibly valuable. If a Harden shoots 80% from the line, a three-point shooting foul is 2.4 points. That's way more valuable than a slam dunk. That's way more valuable than an open Curry 3. If I can lure a ref into blowing his whistle because I was uh, my landing spot was impeded by Sean Livingston or Draymond Green, oh, man, that is the literally the best play we have in our sport. My favorite Harden stat is that when he won his MVP last year, he was the first MVP or second in the history history of the uh, of the league i think uh to have more made free throws at the time of his award than made field goals uh this is not new harden has been chasing free throws um his entire life and he should that's the, to back to the economic behavior of these guys that's the rational behavior given this landscape we've created so i think the league needs to be careful about how we're awarding free throws in other words how we're giving value to these plays and there's a part of the book when I talk about Harden, when I draw, I bring it back to flopping in soccer in the box, where the exact exact same thing is the best play you can get in soccer is a penalty kick. It's spot. Uh, that is the most sort of in- expected value of anything you can get. And that's why that flopping behavior exists in that sport. So, yeah, I think there's unfortunately, Neil, a lot of room for growth in that gross area of trying to use the officials to chase the efficiency dragon further down the trail. Well, tell us one more time about the book and where people can get it. Oh my gosh. Well, the book is called Sprawl Ball. It is out today and you can get it if you like to support independent bookstores. You can buy it um, from your local bookseller or you can go to IndieBound, which is a online conglomerate of such sellers. Or of course, you can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble if that's your thing. Um, but yeah, I'd appreciate anybody if you like stats and visualizations in the game of basketball to give it a look. Um, but yeah, that's the book. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kirk. Was- Thank you, guys. And now a word from ExxonMobil. Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. More and more scientists think caption carbon is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. 
It's one way ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, the rabbit hole belongs to Jeff. So my rabbit hole of the week is on, I'm going to say, top three sporting events of the year, which is the Kentucky Derby, the first Saturday in May. Jeff, that was the Daniel Jones-level reach <laughs> of picking sporting events of the year. Anyway, go on. Wow. 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 Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that because you just offended me, but um, I'm going to move on and maybe I can convince you to like horse racing. I do bet on it every year and I have bet on it every year since college. So that's a long time for me. Uh, I'm going to read some horse names to you guys and I just want to get your thoughts. Tell me what you think of these horses. Uh, Mendelssohn, Irish War Cry, More Spirit, Materiality, Danza, Overanalyze. All those horses for the last six years were the horses I picked to win the Kentucky Derby. (laughs) (laughs) How many of them won? So those are some big names. I I noticed you all like lit up when you saw those names because, you know, (laughs) of course you remember Overanalyze in 2013. None of those horses won the Kentucky Derby. Have Um, you ever picked a winning horse? I have. I have not. I was looking back and I always have this weird ability to remember who I've picked. Because, you know, each race just sort of stands out. If if you pay enough attention, you can kind of remember... Um, wow. just who the contenders were. Each Kentucky Derby race stands out is not a thing I thought I would ever hear anyone say. <laughs> Granted, it, I did struggle to remember or remember why I picked um, a few of these horses. Uh, Mendelssohn, for instance, last year, uh, he finished in dead last uh, 73 lengths off the lead. Um, so that was not one of my finer moments. But here's the interesting thing about the Kentucky Derby. Um, which is going through a sort of strange phase right now, is that the last, while I was picking those horses, the last six favorites have won. Justify, Always Dreaming, Nyquist, who you'll like, Neil, because he's named after a hockey player, American Pharaoh, of course, California Chrome, and Orb. All favorites, all won six straight Kentucky Derbies. So that's a little depressing because as as someone who bets on horse racing, I, I really do everything in my power to not pick the favorite. Um, it's I think I spend a lot of time trying to convince myself why the favorite won't win and here every year the favorite is winning. Um, so that part's frustrating. But it sent me down a little rabbit hole about favorites. So here's what I found. If you had bet $1 on every one of those favorites, you would have won $17.80. That's pretty good return on investment. I, by the way, lost negative $6 on my bets. What would happen if you bet the favorite in every sport for the last six years? And in total, if you bet the favorite in college basketball, college football, the NHL, baseball, NBA, and the NFL, $1 on each of them for six years, you'd be up a grand total of $16. So still less than the Kentucky Derby. But it is remarkable that all of those sports have turned a profit just from betting on the preseason favorites. Um, In football, you would have had two winners, the Pats in 2016, the Pats this year, six to one each. um, And then the others would have been losses. And the basketball last six years, you would have had the Heat in 2013, the Warriors the last two years. That's three winning tickets. Not good odds you only will make 55 cents 
after you lose the other three bets. In baseball, which has by far had the uh, the most long shots, you would have still made a dollar and sixty cents because the Cubs hit in 2016 as a favorite. Um, there were some long shots in baseball, of course, you know, namely the Royals at 33 to one, um, the Red Sox in 2013 at 28 to one. So that that's been very un Kentucky Derby like. Uh, the NHL, you would have had one winning ticket. The Blackhawks, 7-1 to one in 2015, you would have made $2. College football was the only one you would have lost money. Uh, none of the, the only favorite to win was Alabama, but only at uh, Alabama in 2017, and it only paid $2.50. And then in college basketball, I did it at the beginning of the tournament, you would have made, you would have won two tickets, Nova in 17, North Carolina in 16. So, the point is, I might have to change my willingness to bet on the favorite. Right. You're losing money by not betting on the favorites. I know, but it just doesn't feel good. You know, you don't want to be that guy. Well, Jeff, did the did the favorites have a worse track record, like in the period before you started or, or like early in your betting? Um, and did that sort of inform your your style by seeing fewer favorites win or has it always been like this you know i I can't speak to always been like this but there was definitely you know there was a stretch but there were a lot of sort of crazy upsets mind that bird uh won in 2009 at 50 to 1 animal kingdom in 2011 at 30 to 1 but this has also been a great period in general for horse racing because you know we've had two triple crown winners and which was something that didn't happen for you know, more than 30 years. The only time I had a non-favorite win was Funny Side, who actually won the Preakness also and had a chance to win the Triple Crown um, back in the sort of early to mid-aughts. Um, that said, you know, from the handicapping perspective, um, the way I got into this, and I actually think, Neil, you would like it because there's a lot of data involved. You're looking at a lot of factors. You're looking at, you know, race distance, competition of past races, uh, you know, the surface, the jockey, the trainer, the pedigree, you know, who how its sire did all this stuff you can look at a million different things it's speed ratings there's advanced metrics all this stuff um so it's a really a matter of like taking all this information and and sort of you know comparing it to each other and evaluating it you know and i will say uh neil it's only two minutes long so i'm factoring that in i'm I'm factoring in the time investment versus entertainment value when i when i'm putting it in among my uh top sport events of the year you know when you do say that it is second by second it's uh very thrilling all right i think that'll do it for this week's show thank you guys thanks so much for joining us listeners we'll be back in your feed next tuesday this is still a new podcast so if you like what you heard please subscribe be sure to review and rate the show it really does help other people discover the program you can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Thanks again to Kirk Goldsberry for joining us today. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.